Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Gender Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Daniel K. Williams, an associate professor of history at the University of West Georgia. His book, Defenders of the Unborn, The Pro-Life Movement Before Roe v. Wade, published by Oxford University Press, is the topic of this show. Williams portrays the origins of the pro-life movement not as a reactionary and anti-feminist one, but rather as a New Deal-inspired crusade for human rights and part of a progressive Catholic social agenda. They saw themselves as crusaders for the right to life, appealing to natural law and the Constitution of the United States. In the 1930s, pro-lifers stood against the utilitarian view of abortion liberalization promoted by secular doctors. After World War II, Catholic doctors and lawyers were equating abortion with the Holocaust and arguing for the fetus as protected by the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. In the early 1960s, debate over abortion moved to legislative and constitutional battles. Restrictive state laws began to crumble, and post-Vatican Catholic opposition to abortion continued to erode among the laity. The decade ended with a restructuring of the movement, as it gained allies among young progressives, anti-war activists, Protestants, and evangelicals. Pro-life women, expressing a feminism of difference, became visible in the leadership ranks in what had been virtually an all-male public campaign. The pro-life movement's legislative victories were short-term. Roe v. Wade and changes in public opinion interrupted the ascendancy of the pro-life movement and its bipartisan identity, to become part of a larger cultural battle. Williams offers an important contribution by highlighting the progressive origins of the pro-life movement before it became a conservative evangelical cause and an issue that continues to divide the nation. Here's my conversation with Daniel K. Williams. Now let me introduce you to the author, Daniel Williams. Hello, Dan. Hi. Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Your book brings attention to a neglected period of the pro-life movement decades before Roe v. Wade. But before we get into the book, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Defenders of the Unborn. Well, thanks, Lillian. Yes, um, I'm an associate professor of history at the University of West Georgia. So uh, I've spent the last 15 years studying the intersection between religion and politics in modern America. Uh, I started at Brown University as a PhD student uh, doing research that eventually uh, became incorporated in a book called God's Own Party, which was my first book. That book traced the history of the Christian right. And as a result of writing that book, I realized that abortion was a somewhat puzzling issue in modern American politics. Uh, it didn't seem to neatly line up along uh, the uh, the liberal conservative uh, divide that we tend to use and 
understanding modern American politics. And I wanted to explore it further, and I'm glad that I did. Uh, so as a result of an additional five years of research after uh, writing God's Own Party, I produced the book uh, Defenders of the Unborn, which tells the story of the origins of the pro-life movement and perhaps most surprisingly, the origins of the pro-life movement in a liberal uh, political context. Well, the... Um the, this topic of abortion is so uh, divisive, contested. It's the history of it is, as you bring out, uh, more complicated than we think. So you start off your book right off the bat with four pages on terminology, which you hardly ever see in a book regarding, you know, how we talk about pro-choice, pro-life, anti-abortion, uh, pro-abortion, all these terms that are thrown around oftentimes politicized in order to for people to make points against the opposition. So talk about terminology and the issues there. Yes. Uh, well, one of the things that I discovered in the course of researching this book is that supporters of reproductive rights and opponents of abortion are talking past each other because they can't agree on what terms they should use. So the terminology that we use today uh, is very contested. There are a number of news media outlets, for example, that refuse to use the term pro-life except in quotation marks, and yet that, of course, is the uh, preferred term by people who are uh, opponents of abortion today. But furthermore, I found that the terms that we use today are historically uh, historically contested and products of particular historical moments. So the term pro-choice, for example, did not uh, originate until the early 1970s, and yet people were debating abortion in this country for decades before that. So then the question is, as a historian, what term should I use to describe uh, supporters of abortion law liberalization in say, the 1950s or the 1960s. And what I decided as a historian I should do would be to use the terms that my historical subjects used at the particular moments uh, when they were debating abortion. So with rare exceptions throughout the book, I tried to give people a sense of the terms that were used at that particular moment in the abortion debate. So in 1965, I would not use a term like pro-choice because it would have been anachronistic. But then when I talk about debates in 1971 or 1972, I use the term uh, pro-choice quite a lot. Uh, the same thing is true of the term pro-life or right to life. Uh, those terms emerged at particular historical moments. And as a historian, I wanted to be faithful to my historical subjects. And I think by doing that, perhaps I was able to, I hope, communicate with people on uh, multiple sides of the abortion debate because they could recognize, I hope, that I was trying to treat my historical subjects fairly and in their own historical context. Well, Dan, I appreciate what you're saying. Let me, I have to be honest, when I first got your book or saw your book, I was sort of, uh, I guess, reluctant to take your book on. One of the reasons is, and I think you'll understand this, uh, that you being male, writing a book about the, the pro-life movement. And right away, that will bring a lot of suspicion to some readers about, you know, what does, what is, especially feminist women who are going to say, you know, what is this guy doing writing this book about pro-life? And we kind of know the story of that, uh, particularly since so many of the people in the pro-life movement early on in the earlier decades were basically men who were, were arguing these points. And it wasn't until the 1960s that you show other women really, really got into it. 
So anyway, what would you say to that? Yes. Well, I, I understand that this is a difficult subject for many people for multiple reasons. One, um, obviously, is because of the gender issues involved. The other is because it's a, a contentious political subject today. And I, I think it uh, obviously elicits very deep feelings on both sides. And so the question is, uh, is this a topic that is worth studying uh, historically? somewhat dispassionately can't and is that achievable and i would argue that it is i would argue that uh supporters of abortion rights um strong supporters of abortion rights who who perhaps um are reluctant to pick up this book uh should read it uh for multiple reasons um number one i think that we're not going to achieve uh any sort of common ground on the subject of abortion or uh even move forward in our uh, political discourse on this subject uh, if we don't fairly understand both sides. So if we only read the perspectives of historical actors who happen to agree with our own position, uh, then I think we'll be impoverished as a result. We'll, we'll fail to really understand uh, where, the, where the political debate is going. And I think supporters of abortion rights will probably be uh, surprised at several things in the book, uh, but uh, a couple of major surprises would be, uh, first of all, that the partisan division on abortion in the early 1970s might be exactly the opposite of what we might expect today. That is, a number of liberal Democrats were uh, supporting uh, the pro-life movement. A number of conservative Republicans like Barry Goldwater, even for a short time Ronald Reagan, uh, were on the other side of the abortion debate. And that's surprising. Uh, the gender division on the abortion debate, as you noted in your question, came a little bit later than most people would think. That is, uh, the, uh, the abortion legalization movement started among men, and then when it became a gender issue, it was not necessarily a division of women versus men. Rather, it was a division among women that in the early 1970s, there were numerous women who were leading the pro-life movement and, of course, uh, numerous women who were who were in support of abortion rights. Uh, but nationally, women were more likely than men uh, to oppose abortion in the early 1970s. And so with surprises like that, I hope that readers would be intrigued enough to pick up the book to try to grapple with some of the issues and to see if perhaps reading the book gives them a different perspective on the his- historical trajectory of the issue, um, if not necessarily the, the political issue itself. Well, Dana, I want to say that you did a really good job of, of a very, I think, a very fair, uh, historically um, centered piece of work. So it's not a polemic. You're not advocating one thing or another. You're really trying to sh- uh, give us a, a story of something that has not been told. And what is that story? That has not been told. There's some major historical problems that your uh, book is bringing out. Yes. Uh, the First of all, I make the claim that the pro-life movement started long before Roe v. Wade. And that, I think, runs counter to the assumptions of most uh, historians in the field, most journalists in the field. The general line of, of reasoning is that Roe v. Wade produced our modern abortion debate and that it was a backlash against Roe that produced uh, the anti-abortion movement. And what I show is that actually this debate about abortion began at least as early as the 1930s. Uh, so it was – so the pro-life movement uh, predated Roe by 
decades uh, and as an organized movement by several years. Uh, but furthermore, more intriguingly than that, I argue that the pro-life movement began as a liberal political movement, and it was liberal for multiple reasons. It was liberal because it was rooted in uh, human rights ideology that was associated very closely with post-war liberalism and with New Deal liberalism. And furthermore, it was liberal because most of the major pro-life leaders, activists in the late 1960s and, and early 1970s thought of themselves as liberals. Uh, many of them voted Democratic. Most of them voted Democratic, actually. And uh, they were supporters of of the uh, civil rights movement, of the anti-war movement. Uh, they thought of themselves as pursuing liberal political initiatives. And so – as a result, uh, the pro-life movement emerged as a movement that was really not a good fit for the Republican Party. And then, as a result of developments that I described toward the end of the book, it ended up being associated with, with the Republican Party, uh, but it was never a natural fit for that party. And I think one of the reasons that the abortion debate uh, has proven so intractable today and has often been so misunderstood is because uh, the partisan polarization on the issue does not make natural sense. Okay, for our, for listeners who are not aware of the history, don't know the history of abortion rights, except after Roe v. Wade, let's go back to the 1930s. when you That's kind of where you begin. What was the situation culturally and legally regarding abortions? What was the consensus, if there was one? Abortion was illegal everywhere in the United States. Uh, the state laws varied on abortion in the 1930s. Uh, there were a few states, for example, that would allow uh, abortions in exceptional cases regarding uh, dangers to a woman's health. And most states, though not all, allowed for abortion in cases in which a woman's life was endangered. Uh, but there were numerous illegal abortions. The best estimates, although the estimates vary widely, but the best estimates are that perhaps 200,000 illegal abortions per year occurred in the country in the 1930s. And so there were a few doctors who said that perhaps the law should be changed to allow women to obtain uh, safe hospital abortions uh, without having to resort to uh, these illegal procedures. And when they began making that claim in several books that were published in the 1930s, there was an immediate reaction from Catholic doctors who viewed this as a dangerous assault on uh, the sanctity of human life. Now, these these uh, the medical profession at this time in the 1930s was in agreement with the law that it, it should be illegal in most cases except for the life of the mother or something of that yes. sort of thing. And But these Catholic doctors that you're talking about... Uh, most of these are, these are males. These are men. Yeah. Okay, and also the the doctors who were uh, advocating for abortion liberalization were also men, and they had uh, they had a particular viewpoint. And I want to talk about that viewpoint so we can understand what the pro life viewpoint actually was. Let's talk about the the ones the, the doctors who were advocating for changing the law and liberalizing abortion. What were some of the reasons or some of the – that they gave for that? Yes. Well, one of the most surprising things to me was the fact that all of these doctors that I uh, read about who advocated for the legalization of abortion 
accepted what would become the the pro-life movement's claim that the fetus was a human life, was a human being. And so the argument that they made in favor of legalizing abortion was utilitarian. Uh, They did not ground their argument in women's right to privacy or women's right to equality, which, of course, would be the later uh, claims of the the feminist version of the pro-choice movement. Instead, they argued that although abortion was an evil, and in fact, they even used that word on occasion, evil, to describe this, it was the lesser of two evils when compared uh, with the fact that at least 5,000 women per year, according to many estimates, were dying as a result of these illegal abortions, and uh, approximately 200,000 or so illegal abortions were occurring anyway. So they compared uh, the anti-abortion laws to prohibition, which by the mid-1930s, it looked like a failed experiment. And they said that just as prohibition had failed to deter people from drinking, so uh, the abortion laws were obviously failing to uh, deter people from having abortions, and instead they were driving uh, thousands of women per year to their deaths. So in order to prevent this situation, uh, the law should allow for abortion in at least some cases. Most of them didn't say that abortion should be legal in all cases, uh, but they said that at least for uh, – <laughs> dangers to a woman's health, suspected fetal deformity, maybe even socioeconomic considerations, uh, abortion should be legal at a doctor's discretion. And the Catholic, the Catholic physicians uh, rose up against this, and you, you, you cast them as being progressive. Yes. And what do, you, they, what do you mean by progressive in that 1930s progressivism? They were strong supporters of the New Deal. They believed in helping the less fortunate, and they believed in the creation of a society that would value all human life, and that would value the, the lives of uh, workers, that would value uh, the lives of the poor, and that would certainly value the lives of the unborn. And they argued that their opponents were utilitarian in their value system. That is, that they were, were arguing that uh, some lives could be sacrificed for the, the greater benefit of society, for the lives of others, and, and they said that that was a very dangerous assumption. It was the sort of assumption uh, that would lead to an erosion of all of the liberal values that they held dear and that they associated with the New Deal. So they thought of themselves as defenders of the New Deal political order and of a uh, Catholic social vision for society, which believed in protecting the rights of everyone. They also had a kind of a slippery slope argument, right? If you if you allow yeah. abortion, then you're going to uh, allow t- uh, killing people who are disabled, who don't fit, who are a burden to society, and you can just keep going. Why just stop at abortion? Right. That's exactly the argument that they made. And uh, in the 1950s, uh, this version of the argument became linked to uh, to their view of what had happened in Nazi Germany, and, and although uh, supporters of abortion rights very much disagreed with this uh, comparison and found it extremely offensive, it was widespread uh, in the right-to-life movement, which was this argument that Nazi Germany had been based on the same sort of uh, compromised views of human life that propelled uh, the uh, the abortion rights movement and that the next step after after the legalization of limited abortion would be the legalization of what they called abortion on demand, that is the legalization of elective abortion. And then after that, they argued maybe euthanasia would follow, maybe uh, uh, infanticide for disabled people would follow. They, they had a long slippery slope, as you said, a, a projection of the horrors that 
that they believed would emerge from a society that accepted the principle of utilitarianism uh, when it came to uh, unborn human life as they saw it. Okay, how do, how do women figure in these arguments? In terms of the, the pro-life arguments or the the, op- the opposition, how do women, real women, right. <laughs> who are carrying these ch- future children, uh, figure into their 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 health, their concerns? Um, how how do they talk about that? Because they say everybody's talking about the fetus here, right? Okay, what's oh. what's happening to the women? Right. Well, one of the remarkable things, and I, I think one of the surprising things to people who are coming to, at this subject from a 21st century perspective and, and with the knowledge of, say, the last uh, four decades of debate on this issue, is that when we look back uh, at the 1930s and the 1940s and 1950s, it's difficult to find women's voices anywhere uh, on either side of the debate. Uh, so, as you noted, um, this debate in the 1930s and 1940s and 1950s was really a debate between men, uh, that is, male professionals, uh, doctors, and then later lawyers. Uh, and I think women were absent from the debate uh, for uh, several reasons. First of all, women at the time were largely excluded from the professions. And so because this was a debate happening in medical journals, not in the pages of the nation's newspapers, I suspect that a lot of women were unaware of the debate. And that was certainly true for women who would later identify with the pro-life movement. Repeatedly, the women who would emerge as leaders of the pro-life movement in the late 1960s and early 1970s um, had a a fairly common story, which was that at some point in the mid-1960s or at some point in the late 1960s or at some point around 1970, when their own state legislature was debating abortion, they realized for the first time that a sizable number of people uh, took a different view of the subject. So when women enter the debate as voices rather than as simply subjects that male actors were debating uh, is really in the uh, early 1960s. And in the early 1960s, um, there was one woman in California, Pat McGinnis, who took the lead in making uh, an abortion rights argument that was grounded in the rights of women themselves. And that was really a new idea for the movement. She was surrounded in the abortion legalization movement by male doctors, by other, by lawyers, by male professionals. She was one of the few women's voices to speak out on the issue on behalf of women's rights. But then, almost immediately, within just a few years, by 1965, 66, uh, women on the other side of the debate emerged as spokespersons for their cause. And they were, women were the primary letter writers against abortion uh, in state legislative debates such as that that occurred in California in 1965 and again in in 1967. Uh, And as they were writing these letters, as they were trying to testify against these laws, some of these pro-life women realized that the male leaders of the pro-life movement, that is the doctors, lawyers, and clerics, were doing both the cause and women themselves a disservice by marginalizing these women's voices. Uh, They argued that if pro-life women were going to win the fight against proposals to legalize abortion, uh, that the women themselves would have to be the spokespersons and that they had unique perspectives that they could contribute to the debate. And so by the early 1970s, the debate had really become a debate uh, between two different groups of women. There were also a lot of men on both sides of the movement, and would re- and that would be true for a long time. But um, 
both the pro-choice women and the pro-life women believed that they were making arguments on behalf of women's interests. They just had a very different way of interpreting what those interests were. Now, before before 1960, uh, it looks like in your book, uh, these uh, debates were really academic debates. It, there still wasn't in the legislature. There was no thrust or organized movement to try to change the law. Even though people were arguing about changing the law, there was no – was there a – were there any organizations that were actually actively trying to change laws before 19, the 1960s? No. Uh, you're right. It was, uh, it was very much an academic debate. In 1959, the debate moved into the legal field uh, when the American Law Institute uh, adopted an abortion law liberalization proposal as part of its model penal code. And so when that went out to lawyers around the country in 1959, it prompted a legal movement to uh, to legalize what was called therapeutic abortion, that is abortion in exceptional cases, rape or incest, uh, dangerous to a woman's health, uh, and suspected fetal deformity. What's striking is that even at that point, women were still... Uh, not really involved in the debate, and their opinions were not solicited uh, because both the lawyers and the doctors and, to a certain extent, I think the state legislators viewed this as a strictly medical issue, and when they thought of a medical issue, they thought of medical professionals who were, who were men. They thought of the women simply as patients, simply as subjects. And uh, so even as the debate became a political debate uh, in the early 1960s, uh, women's voices were not heard until women – in response to some of these legislative proposals, began speaking out on their own. On the pro-choice side, uh, some women, like Pat McGinnis, said uh, these laws are far too uh, far too restrictive. The 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 proposals that you're that the uh, that the American Law Institute was was making were proposals that would leave um, women without access to abortion in the vast majority of cases. Whereas on the other side, uh, for for women who would emerge as leaders in the right to life movement, when they heard about these proposals, uh, they viewed these proposals as an attack on human life and as an attack on their own um, view of, of women as as mothers. And so they mobilized on on the other side. But it, but in both cases, uh, women had to to uh, take the lead in their own right, become actors, and interject themselves into a debate that I think men were happy to have on their own without consulting women, even though, of course, this very much concerns women's bodies. Now, the, the pro-life movement before then never was really one gigantic movement that was monolithic. There were a variety of opinions about abortion, uh, what could be allowed, what could not be allowed, and also the idea that uh, nothing should be done because it was more private morality that could not be regulated. And it's true that abortion is very difficult to – abortion laws are very difficult to enforce. History has already shown that, um, and so there were there were some people who were pro life who maybe held back and said, you know, we can't really make make do anything with this. This is this is a private morality issue. Was that an issue that was also taken up also taken up by the the advocates of abortion? That hey, this is a private morality issue. This is a private idea or, or choice. It wasn't a woman's choice at that point, but was that idea there? Yes, and especially in the mid-1960s as the Right to Life movement began organizing and showing up at state legislative debates, supporters of abortion legalization 
commonly made the argument, uh, and this argument was uh, especially associated with the California Episcopal priest, Lester uh, Kinsolving, the argument that because Americans disagreed about the point at which human life began and therefore disagreed about abortion, uh, the government should not take one particular religious view, which he argued was what the abortion laws had done, uh, take one particular religious view and impose that on the rest of the population, that instead people should have the right to make these decisions. And at first, in the mid-1960s, most of the people would have emphasized the doctor's right to make the decision. Um, but, of course, by the early 1970s, the the uh, the person making the decision had shifted from the doctor to the woman, and ever since then in the reproductive rights movement, the emphasis has been given to uh, the, the woman's choice rather than uh, the doctor's choice. But yes, that wasn't an argument. The argument that the pro-life movement made in response was that while some issues were of morality should certainly remain in the private sphere, if it's an area in which human life is at stake, uh, then the government has a responsibility to intervene in order to protect human life. Now, for the most part, uh, in your history, Catholics are really the ones who are, are doing this advocacy for uh, against abortion, and Protestants are not buying it. And, and one of the reasons that you note is the whole issue of contraception. The contraception was becoming much more acceptable, particularly among Protestants, and the Catholic pro-life uh, uh, people were sort of tying contraception and abortion together. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about how contraception sort of muddled the whole debate? Because it was all thrown together, and other people wanted to separate it out. Yes. The Catholic Church became, after the 1920s or 1930s, the leading church body in the United States, and really the only prominent one, that was strongly opposed to the use of contraception. Uh, most Protestant groups, especially the mainline Protestants, made peace with contraception, uh, officially endorsed the practice after the 1930s. So, because the Catholic Church not only taught against contraception, but also attempted in the case of some New England states, such as Massachusetts and Connecticut, to enforce its views through public law, that is, by campaigning against efforts to rescind uh, prohibitions on contraception that had dated back to the uh, late 19th century. Uh, the Catholic Church, therefore, made a lot of enemies among Protestants who resented the idea that the Catholic Church was attempting to impose what looked like simply a matter of Catholic doctrine uh, on the rest of the population by denying uh, others the right to, to contraception as they saw it. And because the Catholic Church linked its arguments against abortion with its arguments against contraception, arguing that both uh, sets of arguments were grounded in the same natural law principles. It therefore became easy for Protestants in the early to mid-1960s to start dismissing the Catholic arguments against abortion as well. It looked like the same sectarian fight. And one of the reasons I think that the pro-life movement succeeded in becoming a national movement rather than ending up in the dustbin of history, as to a large extent it appears 
the Catholic campaign against contraception did, uh, is because a number of Catholics recognized in the mid to late 1960s that they had to reframe the the uh, abortion debate. They had to reframe the pro-life arguments to uh, completely dissociate themselves from the church's teaching on contraception. While not denying the, te- the church's teaching on contraception, they argued that that was really irrelevant to the arguments they were making against abortion, that abortion was in a completely different category. And they attempted somewhat successfully to get uh, allies among Protestants, many of whom, probably most of whom actually, uh, strongly supported the use of contraception and yet had serious qualms about abortion. Okay, so this was really interesting to me how the Protestant, how the Catholic pro-life movement basically changed their strategy in order to uh, increase, uh, enlarge the, the movement and have more weight. They had to somehow appeal to Protestants because the minor- Catholics were the minority. So you're saying uh, that they did this by decoupling uh, abortion from contraception. And there was also the issues of, of uh, sexual morality that was also tied up in there, too. And they were trying to get that out of there, too. Yes. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Yes. Well, most of the pro-life activists were somewhat traditional in their views of uh sexuality, uh, church teaching, uh, even to a certain extent gender roles. Uh, but they were also political liberals. They, like the majority of Catholics, supported uh, the New Deal, even to a large extent the Great Society. Uh, they supported the general concept of human rights, of universal human rights. They supported the idea of, of a an state that cared for the well-being of others. And so there were multiple sets of beliefs on which they could ground their pro-life activism. And up until the mid-1960s, while many of them did ground their claims for the rights of the unborn in human rights ideology, in New Deal liberalism, and and claims to care for the the less fortunate, they also linked it to their sexual conservatism. Uh, That is, in talking about abortion, uh, they might bring in uh, discussions of contraception. They might bring in discussions of their objection to sex outside of marriage. But after the mid-1960s, recognizing the failure of this, uh, a number of people like uh, Father James McHugh, who uh, played a leading role in forming the National Right to Life Committee, which became the, the nation's largest anti-abortion group, uh, made a conscious decision, a decision that actually we have documentary records of, and, and I quote from some of those records in my book, a conscious decision to stop talking about contraception and to welcome people into the movement who did not share their views on contraception and in the case of a few liberal Protestants even wanted to distribute contraception to to uh, unmarried women and girls uh, in order to try to reduce um, out-of-wedlock pregnancy and reduce uh, abortion rates. And the pro-life movement was willing to welcome these people, even though there was internal division and even though there were a number of theologically conservative Catholics that had some objections to this, uh, the general uh, view in the movement, the widespread view, was that uh, if the movement was going to succeed, uh, people had to focus strictly on discussions of human life. They had to make 
arguments that would appeal uh, to secular people, to Protestants, to Jews, to those who did not share uh, Catholic doctrine, and they believed they could do that by using the language of liberalism. And one of the, one of the things that they did was the, uh, the whole idea of unwed mothers, of supporting. Some of the women said we need to support unwed mothers and provide for their support so that they will have these, these babies. And instead of ostracizing them or shunning them, uh, so there is a morality issue being against a premarital sex, but you've got a woman who's not married, who's pregnant, and now you're going to offer support you know, uh, all kinds of uh, economic support to help her carry that child to term. So that is where your progressive ideas come into play with uh, with morality at the same time. Yes, and it, it's striking to me that many of the leaders in the pro-life movement, both women and men, but especially women, in the early 1970s, pushed strongly for not only private assistance for unwed mothers, which they, they very much supported, but even public assistance. So the, the pro-life movement favored an expansion of the social welfare program, or at least some pro-life organizations did, like uh, Minnesota Citizens Concerned for Life, for example, and, and the pro-life movement in North Dakota, uh, came out on record as in support of um, prenatal insurance, in support of women facing crisis pregnancies, uh, receiving governmental health insurance and government mental uh, assistance in other forms uh, in support of expanded uh, social welfare provisions. And, in fact, they argued that uh, the abortion rights movement, the people on the, the, op- on the opposition, uh, were supporting uh, an expansion of abortion precisely because they wanted to cut uh, social welfare costs. And while that probably was not true for the majority of people in the abortion rights movement, it's certainly true that there were some uh, state legislators who did vote for the legalization of abortion precisely for uh, that reason. So they argued that actually they were um, taking a stand in defense of women who they believed, for the most part, the vast majority of people in the pro-life movement would have believed that those women had at least um, made a mistake, probably even committed an act that, according to church teaching, was sinful, and yet they believed that by assisting them, by refusing to judge them, and even offering state assistance to them, that they could prevent what they saw as a, a far worse evil. Now, in the 1960s, there are a lot of things going on that really began to help reshift, reconfigure this uh, uh, pro-life movement. Uh, we have Vatican II, which weakens uh, Catholic lay people's commitment to contraception, for, for one, and begins to erode even Catholic sentiment against abortion. Okay, so that's, and we have some high profile cases that you talk about, and one of them was very interesting was the Sherry Finkbein, uh, case. Uh, I think she was the, the host of Romper Room, a child's yeah. program. And talk about that case, because I thought that was a very interesting case, because it was very, very visible and public. Right. And it was really the first time uh, in 1962 when that happened that uh, newspapers began publicly talking about a specific woman's abortion uh, for the first time and uh, and debating that and uh, even sympathizing with it. So what happened is that in the summer of 1962, Sherry Chesson Finkbein, uh, who was married with several children of her own and who was a national children's television star, had a very pro-family image, uh, became pregnant. Uh, it was a pregnancy that she and her husband wanted, uh, but 
in the early weeks of the pregnancy, she found out that a thalidomide-based tranquilizer that she had been taking was known to cause birth defects, and she panicked, and she decided that she needed to terminate her pregnancy rather than risk uh, giving birth to a, a severely deformed uh, child. So she went to her doctor in her hospital and probably would have been able to have the abortion even though technically it was not legal. There were hospital abortion committees everywhere in the country at that point, and it was relatively easy for an upper-middle-class professional woman uh, to get an abortion uh, at a hospital uh, if you can make a plausible case that uh, that in the eyes of the doctors there was a good reason for it. So even though Arizona law allowed for abortion only in the case in which a woman's life was in danger, uh, the doctors were willing to sign off on this. However, she made the mistake of then going to the press and telling them about what she was doing before the abortion took place. And at that point, uh, the hospital abortion committee panicked, the, the legal um, apparatus in, in Arizona panicked, and this became a... Uh, national debate. Uh, Sherry Chesson Finkbein and her husband realized they would not be able to get an abortion anywhere in the United States at that point uh, because under strict interpretation of the law, uh, suspected fetal deformity was not grounds for illegal abortion, even though, as I said, there were a lot of hospitals that would be willing to, to grant that uh, as long as it was private. Uh, but now that it, this was public knowledge, she and her husband traveled to Sweden. They had the abortion there, then came back to the United States. And they argued that uh, that this fetus had been deformed, that it was the right decision. And this set off a nationwide debate. Numerous people supported the Finkbeins uh, in their decision. And it set into motion a uh, legal campaign to pass the laws that the uh, American Law Institute had already uh, suggested, that is, laws that would allow for abortion in these cases, in cases of suspected fetal deformity. But in the view of many Catholics who believed that human life began at, at conception, this seemed to be, to use your word uh, earlier, slippery slope. It was the beginning of a dangerous slippery slope because they argued that if one said that uh, the fetus's life could be terminated on grounds that it was deformed, then why not uh, kill newborn babies who were also severely deformed? What would, what would stop this slippery slope from advancing into infanticide? And what did it say about the country at that very moment that so many people who otherwise said that they opposed abortion uh, and who, who thought that perhaps this fetus had value that should be protected in law nevertheless said, if there are suspected field deformities, then perhaps an abortion could occur. And so, once again, this debate between uh, a utilitarian argument uh, and an argument of absolute rights for the fetus uh, once again entered the public sphere. And this time, because this was a, a nationally covered issue in the nation's newspapers, uh, it spilled out of hospitals, medical conferences, legal conferences, and uh, actually uh, spilled into um, state legislatures, uh, pages of people's newspapers, and and churches. There was, there was one uh, thing that was in this case that I thought was really interesting that you talk about. These hospital boards that would make these decisions about whether uh, an abortion was justified based on these very restrictive abortion, uh, abortion laws... The idea of the, the, the health of the 
mother extended beyond, became more than just the, the physical health. It became about the mental health of the mother. So right. that I think didn't Sherry think fine, uh, Claim, or it was a claim that she would have uh, couldn't bear having a, a deformed child, and would it would uh, depress her, and she might have commit suicide. There were all these uh, mental health things that were brought into it. It wasn't just the physical health any longer. Yes, the state abortion laws, which had been passed in the late 19th century, said that. Abortion was illegal except in cases in which a woman's life was in danger. There were a handful of states, fewer than 10, that that would extend the permission to abortion uh, in cases when a woman's health was in danger as well. But most states said that abortion was legal only when a woman's life uh, itself was in danger. And, of course, when the legislators in the late 19th century had passed that law, they – they had in mind a situation that was relatively common in the late 19th century, which was a pregnancy uh, that would likely cause a woman to die immediately uh, if it uh, if a woman tried to to give birth. Uh, this, of course, was before the era of the safe C-section, and, and so uh, as we know, of course, the C-section is very common today. And if you can imagine a significant number of those cases. Uh, being brought to uh, brought to term, uh, but without the ability to deliver, um, except vaginally, then this would be a case in which a significant number of women would face the choice between abortion or death. Uh, by the 1950s, those cases had become extremely rare, just as they're they're rare today. They were not non-existent, but they were extreme. They were now extremely rare because there was a safe C-section by the 19. 19- 1950s, there were antibiotics, there was improved medical care, and so hospital abortion committees, which were a phenomenon of the post-World War II era, uh, hospital abortion committees often, uh, though not invariably, would allow women to receive abortion for what they called psychiatric indications, and by the late 1950s, this had become by far the most common reason for abortion. Psychiatric indications meant something similar to what you described. That is, a woman would would say uh, that if she didn't have uh, an abortion, that maybe uh, she would be a suicide risk, and a, a psychologist would sign off on this statement, and the hospital uh, abortion committee would approve this on grounds that they had saved a woman's life. But to opponents of abortion, uh, especially to some of these Catholic doctors, this looked like rank hypocrisy. They believed this was violating the intention of the law, uh, the, at the very least the spirit of the law, if not the letter, and they wanted to put an end to this. Now, uh, up to now, that we're talking the 1960s, before the feminist movement <clears throat> really starts rolling, the the pro uh, the the advocates for liberalization of abortion laws are arguing from all kinds of angles, but they still are not arguing from what the feminist uh, would come out with, and that was the right to choose. Yeah. Which was a completely different argument. It wasn't so much about the health or you know, the betterment of society or controlling population or all the kinds of different. It was about fundamentally the woman having control over her own body. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that and how that changed the entire uh, debate. It changed the debate significantly. It did. Uh, in 1967, the National Organization for Women now passed a resolution uh, saying that they 
believe that all laws against abortion should be repealed, that a woman should have the right to make that decision herself. And that, at the time, was a radical proposal that the vast majority of Americans did not support. Public opinion polls in uh, the mid-1960s showed that perhaps about 15% of Americans supported that idea, at most. But because of the success of the women's rights movement, because of the uh, changes in societal opinion about uh, women's rights and gender roles, uh, that number increased to about 40% by the beginning of the 1970s. Uh, there were a significant number of Americans who changed their opinion on abortion sometime between about 1967 and 1971. And in addition, the... Uh, abortion legalization movement itself changed its language. So by the end of the 1960s, uh, what had been the common demand uh, on the side of, of the abortion liberalization advocates in 65, 66, 67, which is that uh, they could simply liberalize the existing law while, while still preserving the general framework in which, which uh, abortion was, was not legal in most cases, uh, that had given way to a belief that uh, this should be a woman's decision. Now, in actual practice, most advocates of abortion rights in the early 1970s continued to use language that was a little bit more nuanced. They usually said a woman in consultation with her doctor. And in fact, that's language that appears in Roe v. Wade. And I think for a lot of, uh, a lot of feminists today, a lot of reproductive rights advocates today, they actually don't like the way Roe v. Wade is written. They agree with the general outcome of the case, but they wished that the language had been different, that the legal reasoning had been a little bit different, because uh, Roe v. Wade in many ways was still a doctor's rights decision, a medical rights decision, rather than strictly a, a, a uh, women's rights decision or a, a, a clear feminist victory. Nevertheless, although the, the move was not instantaneous, uh, by the early 1970s, uh, there emerged in this abortion legalization campaign, an argument that I think could truly be called pro-choice. That is, a woman has the right to make decisions about her own reproduction, about her own body, and the state does not have the right to tell her what to do. And and that's the way that that uh, many pro-choicers framed the debate in the early 1970s. Now, the the uh, the abortion uh, rights. Uh proponents are gaining incredible amount of public sentiment it's increasing while the uh, pro-life people are making some they're making having some victories in the legislatures in the early 1970s as you indicate so you've got it's kind of it's not going parallel they're making gains in the legislature but the public opinion is is going becoming more and more about liberalization of abortion laws so that's an interesting moment, but then all of a sudden you've got Roe v. Wade, which basically un- totally undoes all the legislative victories that the pro-life movement had gained. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, I think a lot of people are not aware of the legislative history on abortion immediately before Roe v. Wade. And what I point out in the, the book is a, a story that I think may surprise some people, but between 1967 and 1970, the pro-life movement suffered a string of defeats. Uh, there were 19 states that legalized abortion in, in some form or another. Most uh, passed uh, the 
moderate therapeutic abortion uh, bill that had allowed for abortion only in exceptional cases. But four states in 1970, including most prominently New York, uh, passed laws that legalized elective abortion into the second trimester, uh, if not actually through the end of the second trimester. And so it looked like a major defeat for the pro-life movement. After by December 1970, or, or by the fall of 1970, uh, any woman who could find a way to travel to New York and pay for a hospital abortion uh, could have a legal abortion, uh, no, no questions asked. And uh, then the pro-life movement changed their strategy. They began uh, using uh, fetal photographs. They began using more graphic descriptions of abortion. And they capitalized on a public discomfort with what was called abortion on demand, uh, the idea that a woman could simply walk into a hospital and terminate her pregnancy in the, in the first or second trimester uh, without giving any reason for it uh, bothered a lot of people at the time, um, even though the support for abortion rights was gaining ground. And even though in 1970, approximately 40% of Americans did say they believed in the legalization of elective abortion, uh, the pro-life movement was able in a few uh, strategic le- uh, political campaigns, such as, say, a debate over a, an abortion referendum in Michigan in 1972, they were able to capitalize on public discomfort with at least second trimester abortions and thereby swing the debate to their side. So in 1971, there were about 25 state legislatures that considered some form of abortion legalization. And pro-lifers won every single one of those debates. It was an astonishing range of victory. And then in 1972, uh, the same thing happened. Uh, a number of state legislatures considered abortion legalization, and pro-lifers won every one except one of those uh, debates. So by January 1973, uh, the abortion rights movement was worried. Yes, they'd been making a lot of gains in public opinion, but they had lost uh, in referenda, uh, in in debates at the polls over abortion in the fall of 1972. They had lost in state legislatures. Their only victory was really coming uh, – their only source of victory is really coming from the courts. And it appeared, at least in New York, that pro-lifers might be on the verge of even repealing the nation's most liberal abortion law. So the debate was not necessarily fully going in, in the side of either camp by the January of 1973, but at least politically, at least legislatively, the pro-lifers seemed to be winning. Then Roe v. Wade came and it deprived pro-lifers of, of these victories that they had won in the past uh, two or three years. And furthermore, uh, it mandated a change of law for all but four states. That is, 46 states had to change their laws to bring them into compliance uh, with Roe. And that set off uh, a backlash from the pro-life movement. So even though as I mentioned at the beginning, Roe didn't create the abortion debate. Roe certainly exacerbated the abortion debate. It ruled in favor of one set of rights claims, and it ruled against another set of rights claims, and it resulted in an immediate rapid growth uh, in the pro-life movement uh, so that pro-life organizations greatly expanded their membership in 1973 and 1974. And also uh, you had some radicalization also in the pro-life movement. On the yeah. fringes, some some people were radicalized, and there were violence, and there was a, a lot of use of images and of you know fetuses being destroyed, mm-hmm. and 
very dramatic sort of tactics and having to develop new tactics or, or new ways to persuade the public that Roe v. Wade had been a mistake and it needed to be overturned as quickly as possible. Right. The violence – so the use of violent images, of graphic images, of, of images that were designed to, to shock uh, in a very visceral way um, predated Roe and it expanded after Roe. Uh, it was a reaction, I think, to the passage of these first uh, elective uh, abortion legalization laws in 1970. And as soon as that happened in New York and, and three other states, that's when the pro-life movement um, began using – uh, considerably more graphic uh, rhetoric and images, but the actual violence, that is, um, uh, attacks on clinics came well after Roe. It wasn't an immediate reaction. It started in the late 1970s, and it was still relatively uncommon and mostly directed against property in the late 1970s, but it continued escalating uh, in the 80s. Um, the 1980s was a time when... when uh, the anti-abortion movement became considerably more militant, uh, and new factions in the in the uh, in the pro-life movement developed that embraced techniques that bothered some older pro-lifers. I mean, they're veterans of the early pro-life movement of of the pre-Roe era uh, were in large part very upset with first civil disobedience uh, and then uh, attacks on on clinics, attempts to to firebomb clinics, and then, of course, finally, um, in the early 90s, that actual killing of, of people. Now, the uh, we have to, to be fair here, the pro-choice uh, side was also uh, involved in using images of women who had been butchered and died at the hands of, you know, illegal abortions. Right. And that was also a very high-sympathy kind of propaganda campaign. Because it was, this is why we have to make, this is why abortion has to be legal in, in order for it to be safe. Right. Uh, and the pro-life movement claimed that their use of such images was misleading. Uh, of course, both sides objected to the other's images. Uh, but yes, in response to the pro-life movement's use of fetal images in the early 1970s, the uh, pro-choice movement adopted as its symbol the coat hanger, and they began uh, publishing pictures, not as numerous as the pro-life movement's images, but still, uh, nonetheless, they published a, a, a few pictures of women who had died as a result of uh, dangerous illegal abortions, and their argument was, this is what will happen if abortion laws uh that is, laws legalizing abortion, are repealed. Uh, the pro-life movement claimed, and this is actually a, true, that the numbers of women who had died from illegal abortions had been rapidly decreasing in the 1950s and 1960s, so that in the 1930s, before penicillin, before other antibiotics, uh, the number of women who had died per year from illegal abortions was probably in the thousands, somewhere around 5,000 women per year, maybe even as high as 10,000 women per year. But by the early 1960s, those numbers had dropped to uh, fewer than 300 per year, and they, were, and they continued to drop in the 1960s. So pro-lifers argued um, with, I think, validity that this um, claim that thousands of women were dying per year from illegal abortions uh, was an outdated figure at best and an exaggeration uh, at worst. But it's also true uh, on the pro-choice side that the that the legalization of abortion did um, 
result in in a reduction in the number of women who who died uh, from the procedure. So even though the numbers were quite low by the late 1960s, they were they were significantly higher than zero. There were a few dozen at, at minimum uh, women died per year from illegal abortions uh, in the late 1960s, and uh, so the legalization of abortion uh, did save some women's lives. Um, and the pictures that the pro-choice movement uh, collected of some rather graphic deaths of women, uh, I think, brought that argument to the public in a very visceral way. Well, Dan, we have, we're almost out of time, and I've got a lot of different questions for you, but we're not going to get to them. But I do want to ask you, uh, what do you hope that this book will, your book will do in terms of the whole uh, debate about abortion, the history of abortion? How do you, how do you think it will play, and what, what would you like to see? I would like to see the book used as a way to to gain a new understanding of uh, the abortion debate as a debate between two different versions of liberalism. And so if abortion rights supporters, if supporters of reproductive rights realized that their opponents were not necessarily motivated by uh, a backlash against women's rights or uh, by even a set of conservative political concerns, but instead recognize that at least historically, uh, the pro-life movement's arguments are grounded in in a particular set of liberal values that are actually quite similar to the liberal values that shaped uh, their own movement, the the, uh, the reproductive rights movement, that perhaps uh, this could form the basis for uh, an improvement in dialogue between the two sides. Uh, so in, ter- in terms of contemporary politics, I think this book uh, has the potential to have a practical effect that would be beneficial. But also in terms of historical understanding, I think that this book sheds new light on uh, the, the strange turns in American politics, on the on the way in which a debate that maybe we thought we understood uh, actually played out very differently than what many people believe. And I, I hope that simply because of historical curiosity and also a desire to understand our own times uh, and the debates of our own times, that people would want to pick up this book. Okay. Thank you, Dan. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. Contact me through my website, www.lillianbarger.com. Com.